good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, I would invite you to use a blue uh, pew Bible, and you can find Colossians 1 on page 983. Well, this past spring, our five-year-old daughter came to me one Saturday morning and said confidently, Daddy, I'm going to write a book. And I admit my response was pretty standard, um, saying, oh, that's, that's great, that's great. I can't wait to read it, Brent. And expecting, fully expecting in that moment that she'll go scribble on a couple papers, draw a couple pictures, and then get bored in about 15 minutes and move on. And I was wrong. Uh, Brinley did not leave the table for the entire morning, drawing pictures page after page, enlisting her older brother to come and help spell the exact words that she wanted on each page. And she would get to the end, and she brings me a stapler and a stack of papers, puts it all together, and says, Daddy, staple my book. And I'm standing there in the kitchen thinking, Brinley wrote a book. And its title was, When Will My Flower Grow? The week prior in her preschool class, they learned about plants and flowers, and so this book was about a little girl who got seeds from her school, came home all excited, and planted them in her garden. And she woke up the next morning, sprinted out of the house, ran to the garden, and was disappointed to find there was no flower. Next day, same thing. She did everything right. It's been two days. When will my flower grow? And so the book goes on, and she starts talking to her parents, members of her family, and she's reminded that flowers need two things. They need light and water. And the flower uses sunlight as energy to feed upon, and it uses water to be the moisture that carries nutrients back and forth between the roots and leaves. And so at this point in the book, I'm realizing my five-year-old daughter knows more about plants growing uh, than I know. But to see flowers grow, you need to be persistent in giving the seed what it needs, and then patient to see the growth. Finally, one morning, this little girl wakes up and the smallest green stem is sticking out of the ground and that's all she needs to get excited and to keep up giving this flower what it needs. Her flower is beginning to grow. And the story ends with a happy ever after, this little girl that looks very much like Brinley, standing in the brilliant sun with a flower as tall as her by her side. And so in that moment, aside from severely underestimating my five-year-old daughter's ability, I remember immediately being struck by the parallel to the question that I think many Christians find themselves asking. When will my faith grow? Whether it is a new believer who is excited by the new life that has been given them in Jesus Christ, and they wake up the proverbial next morning or next month or next year and realize a lot of those same struggles remain. When will my faith grow? Uh, perhaps it's somebody who, who's a teenager and they're, they, they're, they're, they've been growing up in the church and they've gotten the foundation of faith, but now they're starting to ask the question themselves as they deal with more complicated aspects of life. When will my faith grow to meet the growing complication of my life? Even longtime believers who have those areas of life where they feel like they haven't grown or they are not growing or they stopped growing and all these years later, they still struggle. And maybe some people know, but maybe most people don't and 
They feel like a hypocrite. I've been a believer this long, and I'm still struggling with, with this. Sick of dealing with the same old stuff, asking, when will I grow? When will I see victory? Is growth even possible? We're in the second week of our vision series that we are calling Future Grace. And our aim in this four-week series is to zoom out and provide a snapshot of what Grace Church can look like in this time and in this place that God has placed us if we increasingly realize the vision to make disciples who know Jesus Christ and equip them to make him known. And so last week I shared the kind of full snapshot, and I won't read it all again this morning, but I do want to share the first paragraph again, and it'll be on the screen. Future Grace, we are a passionate faith community on a journey together to disrupt the suburban pursuit of comfort and complacency. Rather than leading lives that are overwhelmingly busy and underwhelmingly impactful, we will raise up and deploy hundreds of people transformed by the gospel and spiritually formed in Christ for ministries of mercy and multiplication. And together we know Christ and are equipped to make him known in the ways that we commit to gather, grow, give, and go. Last week, we were in Hebrews 10, focused on the vital purpose and the joy of the weekly gathering, that we gather to exalt God, to edify one another, and to evangelize the world. And now this morning in Colossians 1, we will focus on growing. And so the next slide, um, part of this narrative description that we grow by being intentionally engaged with one another throughout the week as the transformative power of the gospel frees us. It frees us from the bondage of entitled privacy and relational isolation and ushers us into a faith family where we are truly known and loved as we are formed into the image of Christ. Can I ask you this morning, wherever you are in your faith journey, however long you've been a believer, are you growing? Are you growing in your faith? Do you know what growth looks like according to God's word? Beyond the vague, I want to grow, what, what, what does growth look like? And then even more vitally, how does growth happen? So with that said, let's get to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to pick it up at the very end of the chapter in verse 28 and then take it into chapter 2. Just before the verse we're going to pick it up on, Paul has talked really beautifully about kind of who Jesus is. He's preeminent. He's the firstborn of all creation. All things have been created through him. Speaks about this Christ. And then in verse 28, he says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, 
As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Amen. As I mentioned, I want to tackle two questions this morning. What does growth look like? What does it look like? And then second, how does growth happen? But to start, I want to shine a spotlight on Paul because in his letters to the churches, if you took all of Paul's letters to the churches he wrote in the New Testament, um, where we will often find Paul invoking his most um, kind of... uh, personal emotion are the times when he's talking about the church growing in their faith. You see, it was not enough for Paul to see people make a profession of faith or what we in modern days might call get saved, say the prayer, walk the aisle, sign the card. That that was important for Paul, justification was important for Paul, but where he invoked his greatest emotion Is for those who have made a profession that they would grow and that he committed himself most deeply in his letters, as he writes, quote, to present everyone mature in Christ. And the language he uses, for this I toil, I'm struggling to see this happen. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Uh, The the Greek word for struggle is, I'm going to say it wrong, but it's agonizomai or agonizomai, where we get our English word to agonize. If you recall from our Galatians series, if you were with us earlier this year when we spent six months going through Galatians, we saw Paul say this to the church in Galatia in chapter 4 when he wrote, again, I think one of his most emotional points in the letter, he wrote, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You can feel these words at these points in the letter. And it's ones on some level many of you, I think, can resonate with, especially for those who have uh, kind of an authority, a healthy authority over others. Um, Parents, uh, can I ask you, what, what is your deepest hope for your children? Your deepest hope. I'm sure, like the rest of us, you want them to be safe and successful and smart, especially in the suburbs. But what's your deepest hope for them? Uh, for those who are teachers or work in the school system, just beginning a new school year, I imagine that over the course of the year, you grow emotionally attached in a healthy way, in a good way, to your students. That in time, you begin to struggle to see something formed in them. You have a desire to see something grow in them. The same with coaches and their athletes, employers with their employees. Like, the reality of life is this, like, it, it it hurts to care, doesn't it? But like, perhaps it would be easier to not care for people so strongly. Like, it wouldn't take as much of a toll on your life if you did not care so much. But God created us to care. And I think what Paul gives insight to here is that what pastors and leaders in the church care most about is that you will grow so that you will be presented mature in Christ. And that the more churches grow together in the faith, the more effective they will be in showing and proclaiming this Christ to a lost world. So back to the questions now. What does growth look like? 
And I want to stay rooted in this passage. And I think this passage gives us, at very least, four aspects of what growth looks like. Number one, growth looks like treasuring Christ. We start here, growth looks like treasuring Christ. That before discipleship or growing and being a disciple of Christ is about a, a list of actions you got to do and disciplines you got to follow, or what programs you got to be involved with in the local church, it is first and foremost about seeing Christ as your greatest treasure. Verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul struggles to see them, quote, rich, reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Treasuring Christ, growing and increasingly treasuring Christ is the primary fruit of effective discipleship. As many of you know who have been involved in this church and other churches, a, a, a given church's model of discipleship is not unimportant, but it is insufficient in and of itself to see people grow. I think about the amount of models of discipleship that Grace Church has had in its 75-year history. I look around this room and I think about members of Grace Church, and I know many of you, and probably even more of you that I don't know, have been involved over the decades on various committees and strategic leadership teams and elder boards in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s in order to help decide what is the best model for making disciples at Grace Church. And that is not a bad thing. Again, not an unimportant thing because churches always have and always will need to visit and revisit their model as the church changes, as the culture changes. And models over the last 2,000 years, way before even Grace Church, have always been changing for any number of reasons. But the mission of every model is the same, to help our people grow in our understanding and knowledge of Christ in a way that leads us to treasure him. The model won't do it. The heart behind the model, empowered by the Spirit, will. And as you think about Christian maturity, what, is, what does it mean to be mature in Christ? It's not measured primarily in how much you know about the Bible or how much doctrine you can speak eloquently about or how long you've been coming to this church or how much you know about Jesus even. It is measured in how much you treasure him. Christian maturity is measured in how much you treasure Christ. Because the gospel transforms the affections before the actions. And then God grows the affections through the actions. So hang with me here. The more you love him, the more you treasure him, the more you want to be in your Bible. The more you want to lead your family in worship, as awkward and as stumbling as you might feel like it is at times. The more we long to be in the gathering, the more we want to pour into others, which in turn raises our affections all the more for him. And now they start feeding off each other, the affections and the actions. But it begins with the affections. So what does growth look like? It looks like being a worshiper before you're a worker. It looks like dwelling upon first what Christ has done for you before the things you need to do for Christ. There was a man um, known as Brother Lawrence. 
and he lived a monastic life in the 17th century, and he wrote a series of letters uh, that got compiled into a little book called The Practice of the Presence of God. Great title. The title kind of tells you all you need to know. The Practice of the Presence of God. Because as the title indicates, Lawrence speaks of the beauty of intentionally growing in our awareness of being with God. For when we explore in our minds and our hearts that we are created by God, the God of the universe created you, with you in mind. No mistakes. When we dwell on the fact that we have fallen away from him and yet are so beloved through Christ that he draws us near back to him. This is the nutrition we need to grow, and it is the kind of things that you will find yourself dwelling on if you intentionally practice the presence of God. And in our high-strung, very busy, overly productive area, where I know many of you are achievers and you're good at it, in our area, the idea of not just affluence with money, but affluence with, with, with work ethic and with production and getting things done. Praise God for your gifting in that way, but do not let that crowd out the practice of the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, are you growing in your treasuring of Christ? For those of you who have been walking with Christ for a long time, Can you look back five years, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years and say that by the grace of God, you love him more today than you did back then? Are you growing in your treasuring of Christ? Second, growth looks like walking in Christ. Look again at verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. When Paul says walk in Christ or walk with Christ throughout his letters, he is describing a holistic part of life, a holistic way of life. And perhaps, again, if you have a church background, that wording is familiar to you. I just said it a few seconds ago. Um, People often talk about their walk with Christ, or they ask one another, how's your walk? And if, if you're new to the church or kind of to outside ears, kind of a strange question. How's your walk with Christ? But the reason and where it comes from is really Paul. Paul describes your walk as your way of life. And there's a key point in here that we need to read closely and unpack. Paul says, as you received Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. As you received him, so walk in him. What does that mean? What is the connection between receiving and walking? Well, to receive Christ means to receive him first for who he really is. To receive him is to say, I'm not going to define Jesus in the way he best fits me or my life. I'm not going to mold Jesus in the way I would best like him, but that we receive him for who he really is. He is the eternal son of God who came to seek and save the lost who came to rupture the wounds of the fall in us, who died on the cross for our sins so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. When we recognize that, and by God's grace, we trust in him, and we are drawn to repent of our sin and receive forgiveness of sin. 
Paul is saying to the church, remember your conversion. Do you remember it? Remember your story. Don't forget what you were saved from and how you came to receive him. Because now, just as you depended upon him in your receiving, so too depend on him in your walking. Growth looks like increasingly depending on God in your whole way of life, in your walk. Following him as he has called us to and not blocking him off from certain areas of your life. So in the 1991 blockbuster hit movie, Beauty and the Beast, I know you've all seen it, all right? There is a scene in Beauty and the Beast where the beast is showing Belle to her room. After Belle made the deal to stay in the castle so her father could go free. And the scene is even kind of beautifully kind of orchestrated as we see it as a visual. There's tension in the air. The beast is walking in front of the bell. Massive beast, little candle in his hand that's talking to him along with the rest of the furniture. And they're kind of saying, like, beast, you got to say something here. Don't be quiet here. Say something. Because he's feeling nervous. He's feeling awkward. And so the beast says, um, I, uh, I hope you like it here. The castle is your home now. So you can go wherever you like, except the West Wing. Belle is walking behind the beast and begins to ask, well, what's in the West Wing? And Beast cuts her off and says, it's forbidden. And then he storms off. And all the talking furniture just is like, oh, my gosh. Like, not what we were looking for. This is how many Christians often treat their relationship with God. Once he has taken residence in our lives, once we receive him, we tell God, God, you can have access to anything you like except the West Wing. And everyone's West Wing is different. The West Wing of your life are those areas where you struggle to depend on him. You struggle to trust him with it, and so we close it off. And anytime we feel God starting to encroach upon the west wing of our lives, we, we quickly leave. It's forbidden, God. And everyone's west wing is different. Perhaps it is commitment to a biblical sexual ethic. That sex is designed for one man and one woman in the context of marriage. And any sex outside of that, whether heterosexual or homosexual, is against God's design. Perhaps it's the pursuit of reconciliation with your spouse. God, you can have access to all the rooms and all the relationships with others. I will keep you at the center of all my relationships, except for the one with my husband or wife. I've tried. It's not going to happen. It's forbidden. Perhaps it's a realm of what you could call social anxiety. That it's hard getting to know people. It's hard being honest and vulnerable around others. And we prefer keeping everyone at an arm's distance due to deeply rooted fears that we're not truly willing to confront. It's my West Wing. We could go on. It could be our media habits, what we watch when no one else is watching us. 
It could be our generosity and our finances and the love for money and stuff. And God, you can have it all, but don't ask me to give my money. It could be our willingness or unwillingness to pursue justice for the least of these. Inconvenience ourselves for the convenience of others. It could be our love for sports or video games or fashion or exercise that borders on idolatry. You think, I think you get the picture. Everyone's West Wing is different, you see is the areas we struggle to trust him with. And growth, maturing in the faith, is over time recognizing that giving God access to those rooms, while difficult, it is always for our joy and for his glory. Especially when we see that it's not necessarily just our pride that keeps him out, but often our shame. That perhaps what you need to hear this morning is that God will never enter the room of your soul and go, wow, didn't realize it was that bad. Like, whew, man, I'm not, not sure I would have saved you if I knew that was in there. He'll never do that. But he will gently and yet with conviction lift your head and say, child, you are loved. And because you are loved, I cannot allow you to close this off from me. In their book, Searching for Grace, authors Russ Masterson and Scotty Smith write, grace will always disrupt us before it delights us. Grace will always disrupt us before it delights us. And surrendering our west wing to Christ is disruptive and delightful. Growth looks like walking in Christ. And then Paul gives two specific examples of what growing in that walk will look like in this passage. Two specific examples in Colossians 2 that we will see quickly before we move to how does growth happen. Starting with thanking Christ. Look again at the end of verse 7. Um, Paul gives the tangible fruit of someone who is rooted in and built up in the faith. And the phrase is, abounding in thanksgiving. Interesting. That's the one quick application and evidence he gives of a walk with Christ. That growing in Christ looks like growing in gratitude in a way that is not contingent on your circumstance. That your gratitude does not have to be contingent on how your life is going any given day. And again, you read the letters of the New Testament, and you can see how often gratitude is brought up and shared and commanded and put on display by the authors. Like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, give thanks in all circumstances. Clear. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. That's a command. He's not saying if you're a true Christian, you will give thanks. He is exhorting them, give thanks. Because gratitude is both chosen and felt. That when you choose to be grateful, you have the power to choose to be grateful. That then, by the power of the Spirit in you, you will be and you will feel grateful. Um, in 2007, there were 23 South Korean missionaries that were captured and held hostage by the Taliban in Afghanistan. They were in a bus that was overtaken while they were traveling between cities, uh, helping Afghan doctors in hospitals and teachers in schools. Over the course of their captivity, two of the hostages would be killed 
before a deal was made to have them freed. One of the hostages was a pastor, and he said in the months that followed, especially some of the women who were hostage with them would come up to him or ask him to get lunch, and they would get quiet and lean in closely, and they would ask, Pastor, do you ever wish we were still imprisoned by the Taliban? We find ourselves wishing we were back because they felt such an intimacy with Christ, such an intimacy with one another, that just, just the presence that they were so grateful to have experienced that to the point where at times they wish they'd go back. And you might hear that and go, that's crazy. Are they crazy? Or do they experience the power of displaying the fruit of gratitude that is capable of giving thanks in all circumstances? But by the way, do you know or remember where Paul is writing this letter from? He's writing a, church, a letter to a church in the city of Colossae that he had not met yet. And where is he writing from? Prison. He's writing this from prison. He is held captive, writing to the church, encouraging them to abound in thanksgiving. Because growing in Christ looks like growing in gratitude. Mature believers are grateful. And what happens is it creates an aroma that others can sense. Have you been around someone like that? You can feel it. Like it's a contagion. Like it's an aroma that comes off of them, and it's not fake. It's not unemotional. It's not removed from everyday life, but it is unshakable. So rooted in Christ that their joy cannot be stolen from them. And the church exists in the way it does today in large part because of the gratitude of suffering saints over the last 2,000 years. And then, number four, what does growing in Christ look like? It looks like remaining in Christ. It looks like remaining in Christ. Uh, twice in this passage, Paul writes about the danger of false teachings that could lead them away from Christ. Verse 4, I say this in order, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. This is why I'm saying this to you. And then right after, in verse 8 of the passage we read, he says again, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Growing looks like becoming increasingly rooted in truth so that you are not easily swayed by falsehood. The enemy of growth is believing falsehood. The enemy of growth in your life is believing falsehood. And not only believing, but being captivated by it. That Satan uses false truth or half-truth to captivate people. And it began right in the beginning with Eve in the garden. And he tried it even with Jesus in the desert. And Jesus did what Eve failed to do. Jesus responded to falsehood with God's truth. And he stood on that truth. And so Paul does not say, don't engage with falsehood, because he himself was constantly engaging with falsehood, engaging with people and their truth claims in order to persuade them. Be in the world, be aware of falsehood, engage even people in that believe in falsehood, but be careful, he says, be careful, church, that you yourselves, while engaging with it, are not held captive by it. 
growth looks like remaining in Christ. All right, now we have a second, and I hope at this point you understand even more vital question. How does growth happen? Like anything in life, just knowing what something looks like does not mean it will happen on its own. I guarantee you, all of us know what it looks like to eat healthy. But just knowing what it looks like does not guarantee it will happen. So how does growth in our faith look like? Looks like treasuring Christ, walking in Christ, thanking Christ, and remaining in Christ. But how? I have two things quickly. Number one, grace-fueled work. Growth looks like and happens, excuse me, growth happens through grace-fueled work. We're working backwards here. Why don't you go back to the end of chapter 1, where we started reading our passage, when Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Then verse 29 is the key verse. Here it is. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Did you catch that the first time around? You could sit with that verse for a long time and never explore the depths of it. Paul says, I toil, I struggle, I labor with his energy. So let's start with what it does not say. It does not say, I don't work because of his energy. This is not a passive Now that you're in Christ, you can kind of sit back and God's going to do it all for you. God will fight your battles and you can just sit back and watch. It's going to be a great show. It's not what it says. It's why I often struggle with the commonly heard phrase, let go and let God. You know that phrase? Let go and let God. And again, I kind of understand, I think, what people are trying to indicate when they invoke it. But I fear that phrase is often invoked in order to keep us from walking in obedience and doing hard, risk-filled things in the name of the Lord. I think people can use that phrase as a crutch to keep themselves from doing hard, risk-filled things in the name of the Lord. And I've shared this before, but I prefer J.I. Packer's twist on that phrase. He says, don't let go and let God, rather, trust God and get going. Trust God and get going. So Paul doesn't say, I don't work because of his energy, but he also does not say, I labor all in my energy. Where God is kind of sitting up there, he he, he might be kind of watching how things are going, but he's not like too involved, and if I'm really jammed up, like if I really need him just for like, you know, just get me through a specific moment, maybe he'll come and intervene, but by and large, he's removed, and I'm doing this, and I'm on my own, and I'm going to white muckle my way to the end. Doesn't say that. It does say, I toil, struggling with all his energy. Growth happens when we work hard, empowered by the Spirit of Christ in us. Because the gospel says that a change in status is always followed by a change in character. If you do not over time change in character, your status was likely never changed. But that change is only possible if we remember the grace that saved us in the first place. You see, it is his energy that is needed when the enemy accuses us of our past. You ever feel shame about your past? 
What of my sins? What of all my shame? What of all the people I hurt along the way? It is his energy and his grace that reminds us that our past is remembered no more because we stand justified because of the work of Christ. His energy is needed when the enemy accuses us in our present. What do I do when I blackslide? What do I do when I give in to temptation? I say I'm a believer and I'm a Christian and I'm capable of doing what I just did. What do I do when I'm so drawn in by the world and I begin to do what I don't want to do or don't do what I want to do? His grace and his energy reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. You see, it is his energy that is needed when the enemy accuses us of our future. What if I fall away? What if I won't make it to the end? What if my life in this world crumbles and I can't hang on and I give up and I blame God and I turn my back on him? What if I don't make it? His grace reminds us that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. How do we grow? We grow in the humility of our weakness and in the assurance of his strength. Francis Schaeffer often said, quote, if you demand perfection or nothing, you will get nothing. If you demand perfection of yourself or nothing, you're going to get nothing. But you see, the Bible says God demands perfection. And by his grace, God supplies perfection in Christ. He supplies what he demands. How does growth happen? It happens through grace-fueled work. And then number two, and lastly, growth happens through community-based living. Community-based living. Look again at verse chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. Paul yearned that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The church exists because the Christian life and the Christian mission is a team sport. That to expect that you're going to grow apart from the local church, it is folly. And in part, it requires that you tell God you don't need what he tells you you need. Because if the church was purely a mechanism through which information was conveyed, if this was purely just about, I have information, I'm going to give you information, and the church is how you're going to get the information, then I would agree with you that the church is not really as necessary today as it once was. And perhaps it would not be necessary at all. Because you might say in the past, especially when the Bible was being written, that people could only get an understanding about who God is and what God has done through the church. Surely before the printing press, and you couldn't have your own copy of your Bible in your own home. Surely before radio or TV, speeding up to internet and cell phones and podcasts and YouTube and apps. We have all those things at our disposal. And you could say you don't need the church to get information, even true god centered, God-glorifying information. But Paul says here that mere intellectual understanding of information, even true information, will not bring growth. 
It will not bring maturity and transformation. For the fullness, he writes, of understanding comes through being knit together in love. Why? Well, when we are loved by other believers and allow ourselves to be known by them, when we seek to love and know other believers, we experience Christ through them, and they experience Christ through us. That's why Diedrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together says community of faith is vital because, quote, the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. There are times where the Christ that you believe might be weaker than the Christ in the word of our brother or sister. His own heart is uncertain, Bonhoeffer writes, but his brother's is sure. I will not grow in spiritual maturity apart from other believers full stop. I might grow more knowledgeable, you might grow more knowledgeable, but you won't grow mature. And I've seen it play out, and it's heartbreaking that once someone distances themselves from a commitment to a gospel-preaching, gospel-loving church, it is only a matter of time, hear me, it's only a matter of time before they will distance themselves from God altogether. So as we think of future grace, we have a vision for a faith community that is growing deeper in their faith. And one of, if not the primary obstacles to growth in our area is relational isolation. Even for all the people that are around, it is stunningly easy to be isolated from others relationally. Because we have the tools at our disposal to keep ourselves from being truly known if we want to. And so as we look at our model of discipleship and the programs involved in that, whether it be the Sunday gathering or grace groups or classes or men's and women's ministry or mercy and justice initiatives down to one-on-one discipling and texts and phone calls that all affirms, I'm not alone here. And our model aims to serve the mission, to know Christ and make him known. And so as we close, perhaps the biggest risk you can commit to make in your own heart today is the first step in being vulnerable enough to make yourself known and seekly true to know others in this faith community. And it will be disruptive at first to your own comfort, your own complacency, and it won't be easy. But that first step will be the big step to trust God with it and see what happens. You see, my daughter wrote a book When will my flower grow? And she found out that a plant needs sunlight and water. Plants take energy from sunlight, just like the believer takes energy, Colossians 1, from the Spirit of Christ to empower them. Plants need moisture, you see, to carry nutrients between roots and leaves, like the church community helps to carry God's truth to one another in the midst of day-to-day life. And with this light and with this water, you will grow. And we will grow. And we will see how God uses us together to make disciples of all nations at Grace Church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you care enough for us to, at times, disrupt us. To disrupt preconceived notions. To disrupt our desires of the flesh, Lord that you love us so much to not allow us to keep us where we are, but to continually grow us. And Father, I pray, as we saw 
out of Colossians 1 and 2 this morning, that that starts with a growth in treasuring you. Father, grow our hearts, grow our love for you. Allow us to trust deeper in you. And it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.